0: Welcome, welcome. I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing our study through the Book of Romans. We're going to be going all year with this. I love it. We're going to tap into chapter three today. Uh, if you remember, just as a way to recap, the Apostle Paul, really, he, he's acting like a spiritual prosecuting attorney, isn't he? I mean, he is amassing a, a large amount of incriminating evidence against you) <laughs> And me. And here's what he does. uh, And he's doing it methodically. He's doing it thoroughly. And let's just review real quick. Our recap. In Romans 1, Paul says the Gentiles, the non religious people, are guilty before a holy God. And we sang about that tonight. Guilty. Again, uh, you know, looking at a holy God, they can't stand. In fact, um, Paul says that Gentiles though they didn't have the word of God, they have no excuse. It says everything that they could have known about God was made plain to them by what? By what? The creation. They have no excuse. And then he says in Romans 2 that the Jewish people, the religious people, are also guilty before a holy God, even though they had the law. They didn't follow it. They had the truth. They didn't do it. Paul says you can't trust in your religion, and Josh talked about that last week. You can't trust in your circumcision or your good works. You can't trust in your pedigree. I grew up in a Christian home. You can't trust in that. We're guilty. Uh, In fact, Romans 3, when we get to that next week, I think, or maybe a couple weeks, we're going to start hearing good news. But again, the whole world is guilty. You are guilty. I am guilty before holy God. So turn to the person next to you and say, He's talking about you tonight. Go ahead. and We are all guilty. Every one of us is guilty. And here's the deal. You know, it seems like this is all bad news. Romans 1 and 2, it is a lot of bad news, but there's a reason for it. When we start getting the good news, listen, the good news does not make any sense without the bad news. S- uh, salvation, forgiveness of sins makes no sense without the backdrop of sin. And us understanding that we're sinners is paramount, it's critical before we can even become a Christian. So Paul is condemning all of us like a great attorney. He could, make, he could be a great lawyer. And uh, speaking of lawyers, um, I like to do a couple jokes if that's okay. If you're a lawyer, don't be offended. I'll, I'll share with you some good pastor jokes. Okay? <laughs> Just a couple. I couldn't resist. What's the difference between a lawyer and a herd of buffaloes? lawyer charges more. (laughs) What's the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? The bad lawyer can drag a case out for several years. A good lawyer can go even longer. (laughs) Okay, it gets better. A man, one more, a man phones a lawyer and asks, how much would you charge for three simple questions. And the lawyer says, $3,000. And the man says, $3,000? That's $1,000 a question. Seems a little bit steep, don't you think? And the lawyer says, it certainly is. What are your other two questions? (laughs) Have you ever needed a lawyer? Ever have to go to court? We love lawyers when we need them. We like to kind of poke fun at them, but they are helpful when we need them. When I was uh, in high school, 17 or 18 years old, I I needed a lawyer. I got, in a car, I got in a car wreck, uh, and my dad, being who he is, said, we're going to go fight this, fight the man. And, uh, and I, I love Google Maps because I can actually show you the, 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 where I got in a wreck. I was driving my sweet Ford Maverick 1970. I was a senior in high school, and yes, they called me Billy, uh, but no, you cannot, okay? <laughs> Only my fam, that's reserved for fam. They still call me Billy, okay? Um, But this is actually where I had the accident. This is a Google Maps. I'm in the red car trying to turn left. There was a car coming out of the grocery store trying to turn left himself to get in the right lane so he could go right. Okay? So this is actually what it looks like with Street View. I was coming up the hill, and I was turning left, and that car was coming out of that parking lot. Well, I kind of cut the corner a little bit tight, and that guy didn't see me. So he was coming right at me, and I panicked. So I cranked it as hard as I could left, which was a mistake. And I hit the curb, and I had to just sit there. uh, And I couldn't honk because my horn didn't work. And I just (laughs) literally sat in his lane. And he was looking left to see if cars were coming. He didn't even see me. And he right headlight to right headlight, he crashed into me. Well, the policeman came, gave me a ticket for illegal left-hand turn. My dad took it to court. We went to court. And uh, what happened was there was one witness uh, who stood up at the court. I had my lawyer with me, and, and so a witness got on, and I thought, who's this guy? And he says, I was in front of the driver, me, uh, before the crash, and I thought he was going to hit me. He was driving so radically. You know, granted, I was in high school, and we were trying It was at lunchtime, and I was with my football buddies, and, and uh, that guy had been much nicer in the waiting room, okay? And now he's just talking bad about me. Policeman got up, told his story, and uh, The judge looked at me and said, Mr. Young, uh, I just have one question for you. And he showed me a a diagram. And it was kind of like this. Uh, He said, when you turn left, did you follow the red arrow or the green arrow? And I said, well, obviously the red arrow. And I heard this gasp behind me, and I looked behind my lawyers going, my client is an idiot. And the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Young, you, you have just admitted that you, by definition, turned illegally. That's an illegal left-hand turn. So he said, do you have anything to say? And I I did. And I, have, I had a lot more afterwards. I was thinking about it. I wrote some things down. I did say a few of these things, but here, here was my objections, okay? I said, everybody does that. Everybody cuts. Even policemen cut there. Nobody does a 90-degree turn at that intersection. That's what I told him. Uh, I said, listen, I'm a good driver. I've done a lot of legal left-hand turns. Doesn't that count for something? (laughs) Listen, I got an A in driver's ed. I was a good student. I know all about left-hand turns. Listen, I say, I didn't intend to do this. I wasn't intentional. Um, I said, you know what? Actually, it was their fault because they weren't looking. It wasn't my fault, it was their fault. In fact, it was my car's fault because the horn didn't work. And I, I didn't say that because I would have got another ticket. In fact, I, I could have said this, Judge, I think this is completely unfair. I think you're the problem. I didn't say that, but I thought about that. You're, you're, you're just being unfair. This is my first auto accident, and you're going to fine me for this. And he just looked at me and said, Mr. Young, you've admitted to an illegal left-hand turn says, uh, and here's what he said, you can imagine. He said, say it with me out loud, objection overruled. He says, you can pay your fine on the way out. He slammed the gavel and said, next case. So I did pay. I paid for my lawyer, $100. I paid for their car. I paid for my car. I paid for the policeman's time. And I paid my fine. It was an expensive fine. And I was wrong. And I figured that out. You know, it did, took some years, but I'll admit that freely, that the ch- Yeah, it's clear, Um, but it wasn't to me at the time, right? I had excuses, and just like a good prosecuting attorney, the Apostle Paul, today, in these set of verses in chapter 3, he's going to preemptively anticipate some questions that his Jewish friends are going to have because of what he said, especially in Romans chapter 2. He anticipates three questions. So Paul... uh, what he does, and this is the title of my message, Objection Over Rule, we're going to look at three of these objections. And Paul does, uh, he uses what is called in literary terms, a diatribe, which is a rant or a bitter critique, often through an extended one-sided complaint. So Paul has an imaginary group of Jews that he's arguing with, so Paul brings up an argument, then he shuts it down. Okay? He brings up an objection that he knows the Jews are going to have, and that's called a diatribe. And he then shuts it down one after another. So there's three of these that we're going to look at in this section of verses. And here's the three. Objection number one. What about God's people the Jews are going to argue? And Paul tackles that. What about the, God's people? Is there no advantage to being a Jew? Is there no advantage to being religious, Paul? Is that what you're saying? Objection number two. What about God's promise to the nation of Israel? Did God just give up on them when they sinned? And because some were unfaithful, is God going to be faithless as well? And objection number three, what about God's purity? Maybe it's the judge's fault. Maybe God's the one that's unrighteous here. So Paul's going to tackle all three of those objections, and he's going to overrule every one of them. So we're going to look at these three. Three objections the Jews have to Paul's gospel. So let's pray one more time. Lord, I just thank you for this time. And I thank you for how the Apostle Paul is meticulously taking, taking us through, really, the gospel, helping us understand that no one is righteous before you, that all of our excuses are just that. They're just excuses. We're all guilty, every one of us. And God, I pray that you help us understand that. Even if there's people here today that think, you know, I, the person sitting next to me might be guilty, but I'm not. I'm a good person. I pray that you would help them understand that we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We all need a Savior. And thank you for the good news that's coming. But today, God, help us understand the objections that often we even have in our hearts to what Paul has shared already. We commit this time to you and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, objection number one, you have a handout if you want to follow along. Um, And the way I'm going to tackle this is that because... Some of the commentaries I read says these are some of the mo- most difficult verses to actually understand, uh, to get your arms around. And so w- what I've done and what helped me was to actually reword them in a way that makes sense to us and then bring it into our world into more of a modern translation of what that question is. What, what is, what is um, the writer really saying here and how we apply it in our lives? So first objection, what about God's people? Is there no advantage to being religious? That's the question. And and it comes down to this. What's the advantage of being a Jew more specifically? That's what the verse says. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we pick it up. Paul brings this preemptive argument up that he knows he's going to hear. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Again, Josh talked about circumcision. Last week, I won't repeat it, but it's, it's a physical thing done to the body. As a covenant, as a picture of a covenant with God. What advantage is there in being a Jew or religious in our case? The word advantage in the Greek simply means benefit, profit, usefulness, gain. What benefit is there for being religious? What profit is there in being a Jew or a Christian? What usefulness, what gain is what the question is. Okay, now let me reword it. And I wrote it down so that we can all read it together. I mean, not out loud together, but you can read it up there. Here's the question. Paul, if physical circumcision does not contribute to our salvation, if being a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does not guarantee blessing, if the law merely brings a knowledge of sin but but cannot save, and if Jews are being judged in the same way as Gentiles... What good is there in being a Jew? What advantage is there in being part of the nation of Israel? Now, this is a legitimate question, especially in light of what Paul just shared in chapter 2 to the Jews. He actually told his Jewish audience that some of you are not really even Jews. And that had to shock him. And he said some of those Gentiles, they really are Jews. It's like, what are you talking about, Paul? And again, Josh talked about that last week. He he also told them your outward circumcision means nothing apart from a heart change. It means nothing. It doesn't save you. Your good works don't save you. Religion can't save you. So they they have a legitimate question. How would we reword that today for our lives? could be something like this. If things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, Bible reading, tithing, good works, and being a member of the right church... won't make us uh, righteous before god or save me then what advantage then what is the advantage of participating in those things that's kind of what we bring into our world that's kind of the question we might ask and paul will answer that in just a second but first there's something i want to help you understand i think this is important little sidebar um the Jewish people at this point are trusting in their good works. And there's so many people that we know in our world, in their religion, that are, their religion is based on good works. You do this, and hopefully God will someday accept you. That's not a great way to live, is it? And the Jews were living that way. And why is it that way? Why do some people live that way? I just want to share with you, after being a pastor for 33 years and being a Christian for over 40 that here's the deal is that some people are attracted to a system where it depends on them does that make sense that that a system of the law or of here's you have to do these things and then god will accept you that is appeals to our flesh It, it does to me i understand that like i'm doing a project at home right now in my backyard and and I don't like it when I have to have other people come help me. Not that I don't enjoy the help and appreciate the help, but I like just doing it on my own. I like being able to just work and get it done and not have to depend on others. That's pride. But a lot of people are attracted to that. And the law and good works attract and breed uh, pride. I remember a story of a co-pastor friend of mine back in Fort Collins Colorado years ago and he sat on a plane with an Orthodox Jewish woman sweet woman and they had a nice conversation and got talking about religion and at one point in the conversation he relayed this to us I'll never forget it she said oh I feel so sorry for you Christians and he said really well why and she said well you only have 10 laws to follow we have 613 do you, do you get what she's saying there the pride in that—that that, that I have so much more that I have to follow—it's—it's kind of like this. It's like if you bought a—if uh, you had a ten-dollar bottle of water and somebody said, "I feel so sorry for you," you only had to spend ten bucks on yours. I have to spend six hundred and thirteen dollars on mine. It's ludicrous, but somehow the law and good works—it—it it, it appeals to our flesh, like I get to do. I don't need anybody's help, and that's where the Jews were at this time. That's where they were. What's Paul's response to their question of what about God's people? Is there no advantage to being religious? Paul's response says this. You have the advantage of God's word. You have the advantage of God's word. In verse 2 of chapter 3, it says this. uh, When they ask what advantage, Paul says, much in every way. You may have expected him after chapter 2. To say, there is no advantage. We're all in the same boat. No, but he says, Jews, you do have an advantage. God entrusted the word of God to you as a people. And Paul says, that is a huge advantage. He says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. When The word first there means chiefly. In chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul will give more lists of the advantages of being a Jew. He doesn't do it here, but he talks about the most important. He says, your advantage, your benefit, is that you were given and trusted the word of God. So the word cheaply is another word for first of all. And, and he says, you've been entrusted the words of God. And I put the word oracle in there because a lot of translations use that, and that's really what the word means. Uh, you've been entrusted with the oracle, the very words or oracles of God, which the Word oracle means divine utterances originating from God. Now, this word oracle is used four times in the New Testament. Every time it's used synonymously as this book, The Words Found in the Bible. That's what oracles mean. And Paul's saying, You Jews, including himself, have the advantage of having God's word, the very words of God. But did they take advantage of it? These words that point to the Messiah. They missed it. And that's what Paul's saying. It didn't do you any good. You missed the advantage. You had the advantage. The words of God were entrusted to the Jews. And they were told to live out the word of God. And to share it with all those around. The the nation of Israel was picked. And God said, you are my chosen people to be a light in the world. Right, and I've given you my word to help other people find me, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Uh, instead, they uh, use the scripture as a, as a to consider themselves just as a privileged people. Um, by the way, just having the word of God does not save you. I mean, a lot of people, most people, have this book on their shelf, but it doesn't save you just because you have a Bible. It didn't save the Jews to be entrusted with the word of God. And I think of this illustration, it kind of helped me this week to think about that. The Jews were given this entrust, entrustment of having the Word of God, but they didn't use it. It's kind of like, imagine us, you know, the Bible says we're in, we're in spiritual darkness before we're born again, right? Yes? Imagine us being in a world, all of us being in a world that's literally pitch black, just dark. that You can't see your hand in front of your face. The whole human race is in darkness. Yet God picks a nation of people and gives them a torchlight and says, I'm I'm entrusting this light with you. Take it and use it for yourself but also help other people find their way to salvation. There's a pathway that you can take with a bridge and if you find it with this torchlight, you you can find it because of the torchlight. Take other people with you. Let other people know there's a God. And, And it's like What happened was the Jews were given the light, yet they didn't take it and use it the way God asked them to. Instead, they took the light and they they worshipped the light. They they just used it within their own confines, and they shined the light on each other's good works and and tried to outdo each other. But they didn't do what God told them to do. In fact, I like this quote from Bible.org. It says this, God's reason for choosing the nation of Israel was not solely for the purpose of producing a Messiah. God's desire for Israel was that they would go and teach others about Him, and that's really true. Israel was to be a nation of priests, prophets, and missionaries to the entire world. God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people, a nation who pointed others toward God and His promised provision of a Redeemer, Messiah, and and Savior. And for the most part, Israel failed in this task. I think for us, the application is pretty clear. God has also given us what? The Word of God. We have a book, don't we, Brady? We got our shirts on tonight. We have a book. And we too have a responsibility to unapologetically communicate the good news of this book and the gospel message to the world, to be a light, to draw others to Jesus. That's our goal. And that's the responsibility that God's given to us. Uh, in fact, in Luke, it says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand much more. Much more will be asked. So, Paul With the argument, what advantage is there to being a Jew or being religious? Paul shuts that down. And what's the judge say? Say it together. Objection overruled. That's the first objection. What about God's people? Number two, what about God's promise? He made lots of promises to Israel. The Jews are going to rear and say, what about the promises he made to us as a nation? Does God, are you saying God's given up on us because we haven't been faithful? Here's the question. Are God's promises to Israel void because some Jews don't have faith? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Here's how that it says it in Romans 3, verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? I'll reword that for you. Paul, let's just suppose for a minute that you're right. And that all of us Jews are sinners. Doesn't that mean God is going to have to renege on all his promises? To us as a people, after all, God made a deal with us, and if you're right, we didn't keep our end of the deal. So doesn't that mean God won't keep His either? What about God's promises? If if you, what you're saying is true, Paul, and we're going to be judged just like the Gentiles, then what was the deal with all His promises toward Israel? You know, today we might have a similar objection, just slightly different. We might say it this way. You're absolutely right, Paul. I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm such a horrible sinner, and the things I've done are so terrible that God couldn't possibly forgive me. I've offended God to such a great degree that I'm sure God has given up on me. And I hear this not just from unbelievers, but I hear this from Christians, from Christians who have sinned or fallen into sin and just feel like, how can God forgive me? because of all all that I've done. When we had our campus down in Provo and I would teach there periodically, I got to know some of the people down there. And that church had a lot of former addicts that that attended that church and got saved and their lives just transformed. There's one guy in particular that I got to know pretty well. Every time I go down there, we talk. And about every month or two, I would get a phone call from him. And he would say, Bill, I I fell back into my addictions. I, I failed again. And and I just don't think that God could forgive me one more time. And, and, and I reminded him of the truth that, that God loves you, that He has already forgiven you as a believer. God's forgiven all your sins. Of course, He can forgive you. His promise to forgive you is not nullified because you failed. And as Christians, we need that reminder, don't we? And the Apostle Paul, his answer. Paul's response, there's nothing you can do that will cause God to give up on you. Nothing. Nothing you can do. And he's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to us. In Romans 3, 4, Paul said it this way. Not at all. Remember they asked, uh, does my unfaithfulness cause God to be unfaithful? Paul says, not at all. In other translations, this is a strong phrase right there. Not at all, exclamation point. Um, It's also, you can read it, God forbid, or by no means. Paul's emphatic here. He says, let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So Paul says, God, unfaithful? (laughs) Are you kidding me? By no means. This absolutely would never happen. It can't happen is the answer to that question. Maybe God's unfaithful. No, no. Paul says, by no means. That would never happen. And then he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. And of course, Psalm 51 was written by who? By David. After he sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, her husband. And he got caught. He got called out. And this is a prayer of repentance. And Paul uses it right here. Uh, What a a beautiful thing. And and David says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. He is is carte blanche, just rolling over and saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I have no excuse. That's what he's saying. And Paul says, by no means is God unfaithful. We're unfaithful. We're the liars. God would never lie. And that's why he quotes this verse. David got caught red-handed. He doesn't make excuses. He just says, You're right, and I'm wrong. And that is a position that we all need to come to at some point in our lives. That you can't become a Christian without coming to that point. God, you are right, and I'm wrong. I'm done with excuses. I'm done with excuses. By no means, this is emphatic, impossible. For the the faithlessness of man to nullify God's faithfulness, Did God make promises to Israel? Yes, of course he did. Here's here's one of the first ones in Genesis chapter 12. He's speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. From the very beginning, God had wanted Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. That's why he gave them and trusted the word of God to him. But there's two things I want to point out here, two principles that I think is important. Looking at David's example, thinking of David's example, number one, God is always willing to forgive us. Amen? He's always willing to forgive. It will come to him humbly and repent of our sins. Um, you say, well, you don't know all my sins. I say, I don't need to. Um, You think you're worse than the Apostle Paul? Paul says here, I'm the worst of sinners. Are you worse than him? We know God forgave Paul. He can forgive you as well, no matter what you've done. Second thing is that God's promise was to Israel. That's very important to understand. His promise was to the people group, the nation of Israel. Individuals within that people group, like individuals all over the world, every individual needs to come to God individually by faith and repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. Every individual. You won't stand with a people group at judgment. All the Jews won't stand together. Every Jew will stand independently before God. You will stand independently before God and give an account. He's going to put up a chart. And you're going to go, yep, <laughs> I did all those things. You broke the law. And just because they're part of the nation of Israel, Israel, those promises are still true for Israel, the nation. But each individual will stand before God alone. Does that make sense? So, being raised religious will not save you, like Josh talked about last week. Being a part of some group or a church or a family that's religious will not save you. You can't say, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian church. I talk to people um, a lot, and, I, and sometimes I ask, them, when did you become a Christian? And, and, and again, some people don't know, and I understand that. But when when people say, I've always been a Christian, I have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> have you been always a Christian? Why? Because I grew up in a Christian home, and I've gone to church, and. And all these things. That's like somebody saying, uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an engineer. When did you become an engineer? I don't know. I just grew up in engineering world. You know, my parents were engineers. We grew up on campus. They were professors. So I was around engineers all the time. So you're an engineer? Yeah. When'd you be- I don't know when. I, be- I just have always been an engineer. You know, that's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way with being a Christian either. There's a point where you repent of your sins, turn to God in faith, and ask Jesus to forgive you of all your sins. He is willing to forgive you, but it's you as an individual. You don't get saved because your parents are saved. You don't get a pass because you went to church, even the right church. You don't get a pass. You'll stand before God. Each of us will stand before God individually. Okay? So, our pedigree can't save us. We need to come to Christ and confess our sin. No excuses. God, we roll over. No excuse. I'm guilty. And I need a Savior. Ephesians two eight nine 9 says it this way. For it is by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. You're not saved by pedigree. You're saved by faith. And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So did God make promises to Israel? Yeah. Is he true to those promises? Yeah. Will people from Israel be judged as guilty? Yes. Because he will be judged as individuals, not as a nation. All right? So... The argument was, what about God's promise? Does God give up on me when I sin? Paul answers that by no means. So the objection is what? Objection overruled. That's right. Let's get to the third objection. Third and final. What about God's purity? Maybe God's the one to blame. Um, If my sin reveals God's glory, then why am I judged? That's what the Jews are going to ask Paul. The question becomes... Isn't Paul preaching that we should do evil so that good might result? In verse 5, it says it this way. Here's a question the Jews are presenting to Paul. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. So that phrase right there just shows you Paul... Even though he's arguing with an imaginary group of people, he's disgusted by them. (laughs) He said, I'm using, this is so dumb. This is so human. I'm I'm stooping down to your level just just to engage with this question. You do evil so that God, so the good might come out of the evil? Is that really what you're asking? That's what Paul's saying. Let's reword it here. Paul, you've really played right into our hands now. If David's sin gave God a chance to demonstrate his righteousness and his mercy, then wasn't it a good thing that David sinned? And since David's sin was actually a good thing, then how could God judge him for it? And how can God judge us for our sin? So most of us, I think, we see right through that, don't we? We see the lunacy of that argument. But that is what prideful people will think. And they'll turn it around and try to blame God. This is more common than you think, even in the church, that people think this way. Their their thinking gets twisted because of sin, because of desires that we have. And I understand that. I could be tempted to want to make the Bible fit what I want it to be, rather than just take it for what it is. No excuses. The Bible's true. Let every man be a liar. Here's a modern translation for you and I. If Jesus forgives all my sins, tell me if you haven't heard this before or asked this question, past, present, and future, and I'm going to heaven no matter what, then why not live like hell and twist the Bible to fit my lifestyle? I get asked that by neighbors. You know, you Christians, you, this grace stuff. I mean, doesn't that just mean that you know, if all your sins are forgiven, doesn't that mean just go live like hell? Anybody else heard that question from somebody? Yeah, raise your hand if you have. Yeah, it's pretty common. And this is what the Jews are saying, basically, is that, you know, let's do evil so that good might result. Let's go right to Paul's response. Paul's response is, your judgment is just because you are twisting the word of God. In other words, he's saying, you deserve to be judged. That argument is so bad, you just deserve to be judged. In the last three verses here, uh, verse 6 through 8, Paul says this way, certainly not, again, The the, the word, God forbid, or by no means should we do bad so that good might result. By no means. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Paul responds, why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say... Let us do evil, that good might result. Their condemnation is deserved. He just puts a just puts a period and says, "You guys, you deserve the condemnation you're getting." To to argue that we do bad so the good might result. And, And by the way, if you share the gospel with people and you share Paul's gospel, you share the right gospel, you will get this response from people. In fact, I expect it almost every time I share the gospel because it's such good news. You can have all your sins forgiven, past, present, future. Boy, if that doesn't raise the question, well, that means that I can sin in the future and it's forgiven, right? That's the question. If you get that question, you know you're preaching the right gospel. It's not about works. God forgives all of our sin. But does that make you want to go sin more? It doesn't want me to sin more. If somebody does something really nice for me, Somebody brings us a meal because somebody's sick of my family. I don't want to say thanks for the meal and run out and, and key their car. <laughs> that's what you get for being nice to me. You give me grace. I just want to sin more. It's like, but that's what people think. God forgave your sin. You can just go sin all you want. That's why we have the law. That's why we have good works. That's why we have to do our part. If you preach the right gospel, you will get that response. And Paul got that. Here's some Real-like examples over the 40 years I've been a Christian that are fairly common that I've heard. And it just, I just share these as a way to help us understand that, that it's easy for us to get in this mindset of molding the Bible around our sin. And we need to be really careful not to do that. So here's just some classic examples that I've heard over the years um, how we do this. Someone will say, I know the Bible teaches that we shouldn't live together before we get married. I've had this dozens of times. We've decided that it's okay because we'd rather find out if we're incompatible before we get married and end up getting divorced because the sin of divorce would be way worse than the sin of living together before we get married. I have people say, and and honestly, people come to me tenderly and gently, and just a lot of times they just want to know because they'll say, you know, our finances, if we... (laughs) We, if we have to move out because we shouldn't live together, then that's going to cost us more money. And I, and I get that. But, but see, we can't go there. We need to, the Word of God is true, and we need to stick with that and not try to get around it. You see what I'm saying? Here's another. I know that I don't have any biblical grounds for divorce. I've heard this many times. But I'm not happy in my marriage, so I'm going to get a divorce anyway because I know God will forgive me. I've had people tell me that and see again how how we're we're manipulating the Word of God. We're doing spiritual gymnastics to get to that point. It's so easy to do. We need to be on guard. Here's another one. I know it's wrong to cheat on my income tax returns, but the Bible says that I'm worse than an unbeliever if I don't take care of my family. And I can't afford to pay those extra taxes and still be able to take care of my family, so it's the lesser sin. Paul would say, by no means. (laughs) And finally, when I... Went out to the bar with some friends and got drunk. That was actually a good thing because now my friends know that I'm just like them and that it'll make it easier to share the gospel with them. You don't think people have said that to me? Men and women, we need to be careful when it comes to God's word to, to not think that I'm going to do bad so that good might come out of it. That's what the Jews were saying. Our application is this, your sin Is not a good thing. Say it with me. Sin is not a good thing. Jesus, in fact, died for it. That's how bad it is. Your sin and my sin is never a good thing. Could God work it for good? Yes. But that's no excuse to go sin. We need to confess our sins without making excuses and place our faith in Christ. Argument number three objection what? Overrule. In conclusion, I started this message. Uh, talking about my car accident and all my objections you know all those objections can be used and may be used on the day of judgment by some of you (laughs) think about that on judgment day many will excuse their sin or try to they'll say things like this like i said to that judge you know you know judge everyone sins (laughs) i'm not perfect nobody's perfect Hey, Judge, I'm a good person. I, I did a lot of good works, a lot of good left-hand turns. I went to church. I know the Bible. I didn't mean to. It was unintentional, God. I didn't kill anybody. I hear that all the time. Like, that's the bar. You want to go to heaven? As long as you didn't kill anybody, then come on in. <laughs> so many people think that. I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody. It was someone else's fault. They made me. It was circumstance's fault. If I had enough money, I wouldn't have stolen. Judge, I think you're unfair. I'm not that bad of a person. I haven't sinned that much. And I think, well, that's by your standard. You haven't sinned much by your standard. God has a different standard. It's perfection. You know what God says to all those excuses? Objection overruled. So we'll stand before God someday. You and I will stand before a holy God someday, each one of us individually, and he will roll out the list. You think, I'm not that bad of a person. If you sin once per day, which is really good, and you live to be 70, you will have committed 25,550 sins, each deserving a penalty, a penalty that you can't afford. It says in Romans 6, 23, we're getting to that in a couple months, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn from your sin is the death penalty, not fines paying some fine for a lawyer you you get the death penalty for one sin if you have twenty five thousand five hundred and you're a good person then that's a lot of death penalties God's gonna overrule all your objections you're in fact you're gonna admit you did every one of them he's gonna say you you deserve death case closed he's gonna bang the gavel go pay your fine hell forever that's what's gonna happen now this is hell Here's a description, Second Thessalonians. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Let me just end with one illustration that I think is so helpful. Let's imagine you, you have to go before a judge like I did with my car. And you go before a judge and let's say you did, did something crazy. Maybe you stole a car, grand larceny. You know, I can't imagine you doing it, but let's just say you did for kicks, and you got caught red-handed, and you stand before a judge. And when you stand there, you look at the judge, and oh my goodness, you recognize it. This is an old family friend. The judge is the guy that grew up next to us, and we had Christmas with them. And oh, maybe you have hope, right? Hope rises, and you look at the judge, and and he recognizes you, and he sa- you talk for a little bit, and then he looks down, and he says, "Did you did you steal that car?" And you go, "Judge, yes, but I'm a good person." It's the first time I've ever done something like that. And you appeal to the judge's love because he loves you. And you say, you just got to let me go, judge, please. And He says, listen, I've been hired by this state to uphold justice. And I just put, you know, I just find another guy for doing the same thing. You're, you're telling me I, I, I'm just going to let you go. I can't. I need to uphold justice because I'm a, a just God. And she appeals, you appeal to him on the basis of love. And he, he says, I do love you, but I'm also just. Love and justice. And he says, you did these things, right? Yes. And he slams a gavel and says, here's your fine. Go pay it. And your fine is to be locked up for a year because you have no money. And you're thinking, you're unbelievable. And so you turn around to walk out. And the court gets hushed. There's quiet. And you turn around, and the judge is stepping down off the bench. Judge your friend. And he takes his robe off. And he walks over to you. And he says, listen, I'll show you that I love you. And he says, your fine was $10,000 or you're in jail. He said, he he gets his checkbook out, and he writes a check for $10,000 to the clerk of courts. And he says, this is how much I love you. I'll pay for it. Because justice has to be done. See, somebody has to pay. And at that point, you have a, a, a choice. You can either take the check and walk out free. Justice will have been met. The fine will have been paid. Or you can shove it back in his face and say, you are an unfair Judge, you should have let me go. You're you're wrong and I'm right. And you can walk out and spend a year in prison. See, men and women, that's what Jesus did for you and I. When we stand before holy God, we know we're guilty. And he'll slam the gavel and he'll say, Away from me, you who do evil, depart from me. And we'll spend eternity in hell apart from God apart from anything that's good, in a place of fire and brimstone for all eternity, for our sins. And we will know the judge was right. But we have a judge that stepped out of heaven, a holy God that came down to heaven, sent his son to pay a penalty for us so that now he walks up to each one of us like a check, holding out Jesus' says, I love you this much. I paid that penalty for you. The only question is, will you take the check or will you walk out and go to hell? The choice is yours. We all have to make the choice. What's your choice? I suggest you take this choice. Have the judge say this to you. Not guilty. Enter into your rest. When you allow Jesus to pay for your sins, and you will be declared not guilty because your sin payment would have been paid. And then you can be ready for heaven. I'm going to give you a chance to make that decision tonight. Let's bow our heads as we quit tonight. Lord, thank you for tonight. I thank you that forgiveness simply does not make sense apart from sin. And I I trust that we all realize that we're all in the same boat. We're all wretched sinners that deserve to go to hell. Yet we realize that the good judge sent his son to die for us and now offers each of us the hope of eternal life and having our sins forgiven. And if that's you tonight and you don't know for sure you're going to heaven, you could ask God for it tonight. Why would you wait? You've been wanting to for a long time. Now you understand it. You can reach out to Jesus and take the check of forgiveness of all your sins. And you can just pray something like this in your heart. You can say, Jesus, I roll over. I'm, I'm, I don't have any excuses. I'm, I'm sinful. You're right and I'm wrong. I'm guilty. And I deserve to be punished yet thank you for sending your son to die in my place experience hell in my place and now offer it to me as a free gift Lord the best way I know how I say yes come into my life forgive me of my sins I thank you for dying for me thank you for forgiving me thank you that you you, you want to forgive me thank you that you offer it to me and I say yes today right now yes I take the check Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of all my sins. Now, if that was your prayer tonight with your heads bowed, I'm just going to ask you to to do something, to step out in faith. You need to do something. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you prayed that prayer for the first time while your head's bowed, everyone else, I want you to look up at me. If you prayed that prayer for the first time tonight, you took the check tonight. Don't be embarrassed. Look up. Look at me right now. Okay, I can't see very well. If you're looking at me, if you prayed that prayer, you need to take a step of faith. Here's your step. Of, put your hand up in the air so I can see it. Raise it high so I can see it. Thank. Keep it up. God bless you guys. Yes. Yes. You can put your hands down. Now listen, I'm talking to you that just raised your hands. I want to help you. Our church wants to help you. What you need to do is go to the Connections booth right afterwards. It's right out in the lobby. They will. We want to resource you and help you to understand this new life, the life that Jesus gives to us. Go to the Connections booth. Just tell them, hey, I prayed that prayer Bill, and, and we're going to give you a Bible. We're going to give you whatever you need. We're not going to hound you. We're not going to show up at your door. We just want to help you because you just made the best decision you'll ever make. Amen? Let's give them a round of applause, everybody. God bless.